Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Jacob Buer Show. Today, I'm interviewing Amy Kennedy, who's a mental health activist, a former teacher. How are you doing today? Good, Jacob. Good to be with you. What do you like before we get started to talk a little bit about yourself and who you are? Oh, sure. So I grew up in New Jersey and I was a public school teacher here for 14 years. My parents were both public school teachers as well. And so when I came back and uh, started to work in the middle schools here, I taught history and then a little bit of science as well. Um, you know, it didn't really occur to me how much the students were struggling. When I was in the classroom, I uh, didn't think so much about mental health, but of course I did meet my husband, Patrick, who was the author of the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, and that really opened my eyes and kind of led to uh, more activism in mental health for young people. And it really transformed the way I thought about my own classroom. Awesome. And if you'd like to maybe explain, how did you meet your husband? Oh, well, you know, as I mentioned, my, uh, my parents were both educators also, and my dad taught special education. And Patrick's family has spent a lot of time working with Special Olympics. As you probably know, his aunt Eunice started Special Olympics. And so he was asked to come speak in Atlantic City, which is just the next town over, um, uh, to that cause and at a fundraiser and event for ARC of Atlanta County. And my dad's own background led him to get tickets for himself and my mom and I ended up going in his place and meeting Patrick after he spoke at that event. And that was while he was still in Congress, but he had already announced he was going to retire and had a lot more free time on the weekends. So he started coming up to, to visit. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so my first question about mental health is, what would you say something we can do, especially with teenagers, of course, we all have rough times you know, where we're depressed or something like that, the pandemic wasn't easy on a lot of us. What do you think we can do to save more lives and not have people really come down to those points where they feel bad about themselves? Jacob, you know, the pandemic, I think, allowed us to talk more about it, more openly about it, but this is something that people have struggled with for so long. And the unfortunate reality is that from the time people first start to show symptoms around age 14 uh, till they receive services, it's typically between nine and 11 years. And during that time, things can get more and more complex and more difficult. So the best thing you can do is when you're starting to uh, feel signs that you're struggling is to seek help right away. Because the longer you wait, the more complex it can become. There's a lot you can also do with advocacy. We're starting to see that your voices are being heard at the state legislature. You know, I was lucky enough to uh, serve on the Mental Health America board, and we just had a group from Colorado that's actually paying young people to be lobbyists on this issue. And it's really amazing because what we're seeing is that we wanna hear directly from you what would be helpful. And things that we're hearing are that having wellness centers right in the school is going to be really important because trying to find services outside 
within your community can be difficult. There are service deserts, right? So if you live in a rural area, you may not be able to find a provider for mental health needs or someone that's specific to um, your diagnosis or has cultural competence. And so being able to have telemental health is helpful there. And we also know that we wanna be able to have those services uh, move beyond state lines so that if you go away to college, you can stick with your care team that you had when you were in high school, that you know all the crisis hotlines. And one thing that passed last year was the three-digit number 988. And that would be so that you would get a crisis response team that was appropriate, not necessarily the police responding like at a 911. That's awesome what's um, being done. And uh, the, the young lobbying thing that you did just mention, is that just in New Jersey right now or is that gonna be in other states potentially? Well, that one, that group was in Colorado and it was something that they're trying to expand. There's groups that are thinking about this and how they can get kids, not just in the room, but really at the table where their voices are being heard. It's, it's a, a newer concept really that we're starting to say, it's nice to invite young people in to listen, but they have something to say and they have some ideas here about what would actually be helpful. So um, I think it will be an initiative that you start to see elsewhere. That's awesome. Yeah. And you know, getting a little bit more into mental health, um, one of the big problems, of course, facing our schools and things today, I feel like is being judged. And of course you were a teacher at one point, uh, you know, a lot of people, they're just scared. You know, they're nervous about what other people, their peers might think about them in the classroom. You were a teacher. What advice would you have for people who might be feeling like that at times? Yeah. Anxiety is at an all-time high. Uh, eating disorders is at an all-time high. We're seeing a, a lot of uh, new stressors that have come in because there's this sense that we don't have control of what's happening around us. And so looking for appropriate help, yes, we can find some of that online, but also knowing that that can negatively impact our mental health and does, uh, you know, just like politics can, can be really great because it can help us get the message out, but it can also have a negative impact when we see a lot of the vitriol. And so I would recommend to uh, those people that are listening that are having a hard time that you find somebody uh, within your school building, that you start reaching out to adults that you think will be able to provide those services and that you just speak out as quickly as possible so that you'll get those services, knowing that your parents might not be in a place to hear that. Um, they may not have the resources to be able to connect you with care, but there is an adult in your life that can be helpful. And I say an adult just because it's a lot to put on another peer. Um, you know, I know my own daughter who's 13, you know, confides in her friends in a lot of this, but they're not necessarily prepared to be able to offer the support that you need because they may either be going through some of these challenges or they might not be able to give you good guidance. And so I'm still suggesting that you might reach out to somebody um, that has some training, that can offer some solutions, or at least connect you to where you could get that help. 
And there are a lot of groups online that can be helpful. Um, Mental Health America has a free screening, screening to supports it's called. So you can go on and you can take that screening. There are some things there and that's a trusted site where you know you'll be getting some helpful advice. They've also just done a state-by-state -state report of schools and where schools can be doing more. We're trying to push for mental health education in the school, just like you would get any other kind of curriculum that you would learn about your brain and learn about your mental hygiene, just like your physical hygiene. Your brain is part of your body and you can have issues there just like you would have a sprained ankle. You know, we're seeing that with athletes right now uh, talking about this issue on the Olympics and um, in all sports that this is just another part of their body that doesn't always function the way they want it to. Just like the other day, Simone Biles and even Michael Phelps is talking a little bit about it as a commentator now and everything like that. And of course, you know, a big thing, of course, which we just talked about the Colorado thing that they're doing is um, having a little wellness center in each school, really. Yeah. A lot of schools, of course, in rural America, our school is fortunate enough to have three counselors in high school. We also have a fairly big student body somewhat. Um, but some schools don't always have those counselors to go to in small rural towns in Indiana and Wyoming and all over America. How do you say we can probably get more counselors in and get more people interested specifically in going into mental health services? Because that's a hard category that people want to go into. The pay isn't the best. Uh, it's stressful. And you deal with all sorts of different people in that job. How do you think we get people more interested in that and expand that? Yeah, you're hitting the nail on the head. Uh, the pay is not the best. And there is a shortage of providers in this country. So President Biden said he wanted to increase the number of mental health providers in the school, but the shortage uh, will, will make that difficult. And so what we need to do is make sure that the insurance companies are reimbursing appropriately for those services. And that's where uh, Patrick, my husband Patrick's bill on mental health parity actually comes into play because we're saying that the same way they would reimburse for any other medical diagnosis, they need to reimburse for this. They need to cover it with insurance and not at a third of the cost, but the full amount like they would with diabetes or any cardiovascular disease, this should be reimbursed. And when we start to see the salaries increase, when we start to see um, student loan forgiveness for those people going into the field, then we would see more students choosing that profession. So we can do some things to incentivize people into the field. And I think that would make a big difference, but we're also gonna have to look at how we can use things like technology to expand our reach and meet our need and prevention. Because if we're able to do social emotional learning in school, early screenings, we're gonna see fewer people that need those higher level services. And that'll be helpful for you know, reducing the demand. Um, we're, right now, ERs are just overrun. We don't have enough psychiatric beds. People are waiting in the ERs and um, hospitals are being charged with taking care of people that are struggling, even though they may not have the expertise in that area. For sure. And just one other thing, of course, that I and I want to get your thoughts on this too before I move on to uh, another topic. But um, 
a big thing, of course, is in a lot of these big cities that have troubles, um, a police, for example, when there's a mental health crisis or something on the street going on, we, it would be great, I feel like, in my opinion, to have somebody there to just, you know, encourage those people, not cuff them or anything like that, but really just have somebody there in the mental health profession. And I'm not saying to get rid of the police force or anything, but what, I'm, but what my thoughts are, and I want to get your thoughts on this, is to have some counselors or mental health people available at your local police department in these big cities like Baltimore, New York City, Indianapolis, Chicago, and all the cities like that, so that when we have these crisis issues or even hostage issues or things like that, we can have somebody who can talk to that person who can talk their emotions through so that they can get better. What are your thoughts on something like that potentially happening in the future? Yeah, you know, those ride-alongs are happening in some places already and have been for a long time. New Haven is one example where the police there have partnered with Yale and they've offered those types of um, ride-alongs so that there's somebody to come back and to help reduce the trauma of the, that interaction. And it's important that we support that 988 because it's not just a new number. It would be a whole infrastructure that would need to be created around that phone number so that when you call, there's a response team and a place for that, those individuals to go rather than being incarcerated, rather than uh, you know, taking them to jail or the ER once a response team comes, we need a whole infrastructure around that. What would that look like? And if we're able to build that out, then we can have the appropriate response for the situation. We know that police um, are undergoing training, that this is going to continue to be something that happens and needs to happen, and that there are times when um, a licensed clinical social worker will not be enough for a situation that may um, escalate. But having someone there to help with the de-escalation or help uh, have a background in mental health will certainly do a lot to reduce the trauma and make sure people get the appropriate uh, follow-up care. Which I absolutely agree with on that. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna actually just look more into that New Haven Yale thing because I think that's interesting. That we're having, you know, cities such as that size start something like this where they're partnering with things. Um, another just quick topic I'm going to touch on is you ran for Congress in New Jersey. What was that experience like? And especially doing it in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, I did some campaign work too, so I know all that virtual stuff. But what was it like in running for Congress and everything like that? Yeah, it was um, something that, you know, given the climate in the country at the time, I felt really compelled to do. I felt like South Jersey uh, didn't have strong representation. So I was anxious to do it. You know, I wouldn't say excited, that's not necessarily, but compelled, you know. And at the time I decided to run, we didn't know about the pandemic. So it was partway through the race that everything was getting shut down. And it really changed the way we were able to connect with voters. I was not successful in running. Um, we won the primary and then uh, we kept trying to reach out to voters. We did what we could through uh, media, paid media, TV, but it, we definitely missed that opportunity to be able to really door knock and get out there among people and introduce myself. I was running against an incumbent and being able to really introduce myself in that face-to-face -face interaction, I think that might've been helpful. 
but it was a good experience um, for me. I felt really welcomed into, you know, parts of my own community that I just hadn't engaged with before. And being able to see more of this place that I've grown up and lived my whole life, you know, when you're traveling to every event, every meeting uh, for a year, you just see a whole different side of, of your own state. And we have this um, South Jersey Congressional District too, the biggest chunk of New Jersey. So it was a lot of driving and also a lot of Zoom calls once we switched to that. But I recommend it for anybody that's listening, um, either thinking about getting involved uh, in someone else's campaign. It could be anything from making phone calls to just showing up for them at events. Of course, social media, any social media you can do for them helps, even if you're not able to donate to that candidate financially it's a big um, help to have lots of followers because it does lead to uh, more support financially for your candidate and also just getting the word out. And then maybe think about being a candidate yourself. I hope you know we'll see cooler heads and people that are willing to work together in just very issue-driven um, causes instead of so much just partisan work. I would love to see a candidate who is really passionate about one issue and making a big difference, whether it's the environment, mental health, um, or, or something else. For sure. Yeah. And just a quick follow-up to that, would you ever consider running for office again in the future, potentially? You know, I think I would never rule it out. I, I haven't thrown my name in for this year, but, um, you know, down the line, I would consider it, but it's, it was really for me, something in that moment that inspired me to want to do it. Um, and now I am really focused on how we can increase services in schools. So I'm going to stay on that track, especially considering the pandemic and kind of the extra stressors that we've had, I think this will be clearly uh, an important time. One of the things that has happened since I ran is that with the COVID relief and the uh, rescue plan, $130 billion have been set aside for schools and of that mental health can be part of that solution. And so I really wanna make sure that those dollars are spent on evidence-based practices. So. That's where I'm focusing my energy right now. That's awesome. And just one last question I have is, um, what was it like being married and um, having it be officiated by the uh, Supreme Court Justice? <laughs> uh, Justice Breyer was fantastic. You know, we just went to a family wedding last week in the same spot where we got married 10 years ago. And it was just, just as beautiful. It was a fantastic day. The weather was perfect. And that was just the icing on the cake. Um, you know, Patrick said, well, if we're gonna get married by a justice of the peace, then how about a Supreme Court justice? That would be even more um, special. So we had a full moon, beautiful weather and just lots of family there because we kept it pretty small uh, when we got married. And now 10 years later, we have five kids and we're uh, 
happy to have celebrated our anniversary. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Jacob. Good afternoon, everybody. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Mr. Murphy, who is the former acting secretary of the Army, um, the Honorable Patrick Murphy. He was also a congressman, and he was the first Iraq War veteran to serve in Congress, if I'm correct on that. How are you doing today? Jacob, doing great, buddy. It's good to be with you, and thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. So before getting to questions, would you like to talk a little bit about yourself? Sure. I, listen, I'm, I'm very blessed. I'm, I'm calling in right now from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where I had the opportunity to represent it in Congress. It's the Pennsylvania 1st Congressional District. Uh, and my home behind me uh, was built in, in 1741, so before the country was established. But uh, I'm, I'm a blue-collar kid uh, from uh, Northeast Philadelphia. Uh, I, I come from a family of public servants. My father served in the Navy uh, and then 22 years in the Philadelphia Police Department. Uh, my mother was a, was a Catholic nun, uh, was devoted to our church. Uh, she eventually left the convent, met my father. But uh, my brother, sister, and I uh, all believe in, uh, in doing what we can to make our communities and our country uh, the best country it could be. Awesome. And of course, you came from a background of public service with your family and everything. What inspired you to go into the Army? Well, I was, I was very lucky. I, I had uh, role models in my life, like my father. I had two uncles that served in the Army in Vietnam, and uh, two of my uncles were actually paratroopers, so soldiers that jumped out of airplanes for a living uh, in the combat. So, uh, so for me, uh, it, was, it was kind of a family tradition to serve, and so to go and serve as an officer, uh, the first officer in our family, was, was, was an awesome experience. And so I did what's known as ROTC. Uh, I did ROTC at a small Catholic college called King's College. It's in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. It's affiliated with Notre Dame. There's seven uh, what's called Holy Cross schools, the Holy Cross Order. Uh, Notre Dame is the most popular of the seven. But uh, I played collegiate hockey at King's College. It was a three-year captain, uh, defenseman, and then was, was always active in my community. But when I learned more about the Army ROTC program, how I could devote three years of my life through ROTC to become an officer and to, and to lead 40 men and women in a, in a platoon and to go on. Um, it was an awesome opportunity that I took a hold of and was lucky enough to earn a two-year scholarship. And then uh, the Army eventually cut me loose to go to law school and, and I went on from there. And what inspired you to go into law? You know, it was a perfect segue. My father was a police officer. My mother was a legal secretary. So for me, I always thought I would go and be a prosecutor, which I went to do in, as a military prosecutor, as a federal prosecutor. Uh, and then I prosecuted terrorists overseas, uh, some terrorists over in Baghdad, Iraq, uh, that did a lot of their false citizens and our, and our troops harm. So, um, so for me, I, I love the law, love learning about it. Uh, when I was in college, the movie A Few Good Men came out. So if you ever saw that, uh, it was a good, good flick. Uh, but uh, that's, that's why I went and to law and I also started from the bottom and that I started as a messenger, then became a paralegal and then became a lawyer and then a partner at, at major law firms. So for me, the law was an important part of my life. I'm not practicing right now. Uh, I'm, I'm more of a veteran or, uh, and someone who is a you know, chair of boards and some other things, opportunities that I have and still believe and I still teach though at, at West Point and, and other institutions. 
Awesome. And if you don't mind me asking Tashin a little bit about what was it like serving in the Iraq war? Well, it was hot. I can tell you that, Jacob. You know, it was 138 degrees. So, you know, on a, on a hot summer day, you know, when it's 95 or 98 or whatever, uh, that's hot. I imagine being in 138 degree heat when you have the body armor on and your helmet. And I, I lived and worked out of a Fort operating base in the middle of Baghdad, Iraq, in an area that had Sunni and Shia population and where we didn't have showers or even latrines. So it was uh, pretty Spartan living. Uh, and uh, he saw the best, the worst of people, the best of the best uh, in my unit, uh, the All-American Division uh, with the 82nd Airborne. Um, they were just incredible heroes. So to serve in the company of heroes every day in those situations was, was tremendous. Uh, but unfortunately, far too often, you saw the worst in people uh, and that at night we would get uh, attacked by mortar shells, uh, artillery pieces from afar. Uh, and there was times that you know, we were shot at uh, in small arms and close range. So uh, I had unfortunately lost 19 of my brothers over there and I never made it home. And then even those that didn't make it home, some of us uh, unfortunately have fallen through the cracks. And that's why I'm committed to standing up for my brother and sister veterans to make sure that we leave no one behind that we do what's necessary to get them on the right out loud path to be civic assets to our country that's awesome what you're doing and then i apologize for what happened to your brothers and all of your friends you served with and thank you for your service in the army um and just speaking a little bit about on the military and everything what advice would you have for somebody who's maybe considering joining the rotc they're not 100 sure but they're concerned maybe joining the national guard or something like that what advice would you have for them well i always you know we have an inter-service rivalry so i always say america's varsity team is united states army so the marine corps doesn't like that uh you know and uh you know, uh, and in the Navy and the Air Force, my brother's an Air Force officer. So, uh, you know, I, we joke back and forth, but the reality of it is in the Army specifically, uh, we have about a little over a million soldiers. And of those million, the majority of those soldiers are actually in the National Guard or the reserves. So they're, they're in their communities where they're serving. Um, and those on active duty are, are, you know, throughout the country and in and, and over 100 50 countries across the country, across the world. I mean, so uh, it's just an awesome experience. I know for me, you know, to become an officer, you have to have a college degree. So I was working my way through college, you know, through through the army and, and through other jobs and and to, to earn that rank of second lieutenant. Geez, I can't believe Jacob, but it was 25 years ago uh, this week. So, uh, you know, it took me three years to get there, but it happened. And then to go and serve in the military in, in the capacities that I did and in, in combat twice, teaching at West Point, uh, leading uh, the army at the Pentagon, uh, and even now being back at West Point as a chair of innovation, I've had an awesome experience uh, in the army and in my you know, political service career. That is truly awesome. And thanks for all that you've done for this country. Um, and then after serving in the army, you ended up running for Congress. What was that like? Well, you know, Jacob, I wasn't, you know, I, I don't know your political affiliation and I don't care. I, I would love more young people to get involved in politics, but I was an independent my whole life. Uh, and uh, I voted for who I always thought the best person was for the job. And so um, uh, I had voted for uh, George Bush in 2000. Uh, I believed him when he said he was a compassionate conservative. Uh, and I think he did some good things. And, but, 
I don't think we should have went into the Iraq war to begin with. Uh, we had to bring bin Laden to justice, the one who murdered thousands of innocent American civilians on 9-11 uh, 20 years ago. Uh, and he was in Afghanistan on the border of, of Pakistan. So uh, I think we lost focus on, on bringing him to justice. We went into Iraq, which had no connection with 9-11. So, you know, when I was over there and losing 19 men, I, I don't, I didn't think the war was the right war for us to be in strategically. I mean, our troops are doing a great job, but they don't get to choose what fights we get into. It's, it's the political leaders in America and the White House and Congress uh, that put our young men and women into harm's way on behalf of our families here at home to keep them safe. So because I thought the war was wrong, I, I came back and I had about $322 in my bank account and declared for the U.S. Congress. Uh, and yeah, how, uh, $320? I had $322, yes, Jacob. I'm not a wealthy uh, individual. Uh, in fact, of the 435 members of Congress, I was the bottom 10% in wealth because uh, I still pay my college loans off and law school loans. But that's okay because, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a big proponent of education and, and public service. So uh, I chose my path and, and proud of it. But uh, I decided to run for the U.S. Congress. A lot of folks thought I was too young. I, I won when I was 33, and I was outspent over $3 million, but we knocked on a lot of doors, and we, and we fought for issues that we really believed in, like the new post nine GI Bill, uh, which then became law. And, and right now, colleges and universities across America, whether they're in South Bend, Indiana, Notre Dame, or Indiana University, or USC, et cetera, there's about 1.1 million Americans in colleges right now on that piece of legislation, that post 9-11 legislation. And there, there are um, our former warriors uh, or their family members that, that are going to college right now. And that's a great thing. Uh, and so uh, I worked on that. I worked on uh, a lot of other pieces of legislation, bringing a veteran cemetery here in southeastern Pennsylvania, the suburbs of Philadelphia. Uh, I voted and led the fight and authored the bill that repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell, because even though I'm straight, um, you know, I have two beautiful kids and, and everything, you know, I believe in equality. Uh, and I believe that in America, uh, you know, it's all about your sweat equity. It's all about, you know, working hard and moving the ball forward to keep our community and our country better than it was yesterday. So like in the military, I didn't, I didn't care who, who you loved back at home. And yet we kicked out 13,000 troops uh in over a decade and a half and, and i just thought it was wrong so i stood up and fought to change it and, and the murphy amendment passed and repealed uh don't ask don't tell so we repealed that piece of legislation now um you know you could you could live honorably without lying about who you love back at home wow and um what would you say and what would you say it was like trying to get that repeal? What was the process like? Um, of course, there would be bipartisanship at some point. What is it like? Because, you know, I always hear from people and I've talked to many former congressmen um, and they always say to me, behind the scenes, we get along fairly well, but it's the media who sometimes divides us too much and things like that and lobbying. What would you say, how do you think we could get more bipartisanship things done? Well, there's no doubt that the media has a problem, you know, that they, they exacerbate the issue from the far left and the far right. But but I would say there are folks in, in Washington and in state capitals throughout the world, they're just happy to be there. I wasn't just happy to be there I, all throughout my life, whether I was a college student, you know, being in student government, whether I was teaching at West Point, uh, whether I was in Baghdad or, or in Bosnia. Uh, the fact is I'm put on this earth to make it better. Uh, 
God's given me a lot of talents uh, and uh, the drive to work harder and work harder for other people. So I will say that the process, you know, I, it was a bipartisan bill, the Murphy Amendment that, that repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Uh, it was 10 years ago. Uh, and uh, we're proud about that. Um, it wasn't always easy, though. I had members of Congress that said I'd have blood on my hands, that if the military wasn't for this. I had general officers testify that they thought it was wrong. Uh, but you got to remember, Jacob, the, the founding principle of our country, in fact, the blueprint of our country is the United States Constitution. That Constitution lays out that we have three branches of government, the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. And we have checks and balances. We have those separation of powers for a reason. Uh, and one branch is not more powerful than the other one. So even though I had Army generals and, and others that, that weren't for it, that repeal, uh, I, I was for it because uh, I saw with my own eyes uh, how we, we ripped apart people's lives and we kicked them out of the army, not for misconduct, because again, whether you're gay or straight, if there's misconduct, yeah, that, we'll throw you out, but just because of who they love back at home. It was wrong. Uh, and I go by, I, I keep things pretty simple. I, you know, either believe in equality or you don't, and you're either willing to fight for it or you're not. And I wasn't going to look the other way. And I didn't know if I was going to serve in Congress for two years or 20 years, but I made every year that I was there count and uh, getting things done. Sounds good. And then moving on to when you ended up after becoming, a, after you served in Congress for a little bit of time, then ended up becoming the undersecretary of the Army. What was that process like, um, working under the president, being high up in Army rankings? What was that like? Yeah, well, my first term in Congress, I served under President Bush, and my second term was under President Obama. Uh, and uh, it was an awesome experience. Uh, but then I had my own TV show with NBC News up at 30 Rock in, in New York City. Um, and I was a partner at a law firm and, and things were good. But uh, I, I did see President Obama at an event uh, and we had been talking and he let me know that there's going to be some changes being made in the Pentagon and asked me to go serve as the Undersecretary of the Army, uh, which is the number two. Uh, so I was presidentially appointed. I had to get through Senate confirmation and one of my personal uh, heroes is John McCain, Senator John McCain, who's no longer with us, but I, I had to go through his committee and, and I got confirmed uh, pretty quickly. Uh, they ask tough questions and, and they dig in through all your background, et cetera, but I got through and then I had the incredible opportunity to be the acting secretary of the army, so be the leader of the army. Uh, and my battle buddy, Matt, was then army chief of staff, Mark Milley. And, and Mark Milley is now the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, Mark Milley is, is, is just a good friend and someone who I really, really admire as a person, as an American leader. Awesome. And what would you say, do you have any memories um, being in that role? I, mean, I know you probably can't talk about a lot of things like that of what went on and everything, but like any memories that you had made with the president or any memories that you always remember in your Senate confirmation? Yeah, well, I, I will tell you, you know, John McCain, he was he was tough. And so right off the get-go, I mean, he, he asked me a tough question. It was you know, kind of not about the job, about, but about foreign policy. And he wasn't going to take, you know, some type of canned response. He wanted to see who you were under pressure. Um, and I think I answered the call uh, and gave to him straight. I and mean, he appreciated that. Uh, but other memories, you know, I, whether it was, you know, I've, I've since been uh, friendly with, with President Bush. He does a great job with the Bush scholars. And I have a lot of friends that went through that program, but also, you know, playing basketball at the White House with, with Barack Obama. And, you know, you I, I remember. Him? 
Uh, we've played three games, and, and I will say that we won the first game. I'm not going to disclose how the other two went, but I will tell you um, <laughs> there's pictures in the New York Times and other outlets and on, on my, uh, you know, my social media at Patrick Murphy PA where, uh, you know, we were there playing, and, and it was the first time playing basketball against the president and his team, and it was a bunch of members of Congress, you know, folks like Joe Donnelly, who was the U.S. Senator from Indiana and elsewhere, yes. uh, were playing, and, and these are uh, men and women that we we were always playing ball together, you know, when, when we were off the clock. Uh, and uh, when we were with the White House, we, we didn't know how to take that exactly. But, you know, I'm from Philadelphia. So, you know, when I hit the first three to begin the game, uh, I told the president he better start Ding up that we weren't there to take it easy on him. Uh, <laughs> so he kind of took that as a challenge. And, and you know, but we had a good squad, man. We had, you know, all my classmates. We had great folks like Joe Donnelly from South Bend, Indiana. Brad Ellison from Evan, Evansville. Uh, Heath I remember Schuller. against uh, Dan Coates at the time for U.S. Senate. Yep, yep. Um, we had other folks like Heath Schuller, who was the Heisman Trophy runner-up, NFL quarterback, and, and U.S. congressman. So, again, people like and Republicans like Jeff Flake, uh, who eventually went on to become a, a senator. So, so again, this, this is all about, you know, bipartisanship, camaraderie, about, you know, kind of, you know, we didn't break bread, but we – play basketball and uh and it was good that we were able to do that and trying to find that common ground but you got to be willing always Jacob and it's my advice young people you know putting the country and the community first you, you know it can't be about you it can't be about your political ambitions or your political career you got to be willing to work with people to make the lives of your constituents of your fellow Americans better I totally agree with you on that thank you so much for coming on my show today I know you got to go in a little bit any other advice that you just have for Americans of all the next generation of Americans? Yeah, listen, I, and, you know, if people could follow me and, and, and connect with me on, on social media, I'm out there on IG and Twitter and Facebook, et cetera. But, you know, would love to have that connection because, you know, I, I'm working every day as, as America's youngest Democrat in the U.S. Congress at age 33. I, I tell people they can do anything they want. Uh, and, you know, I did that after being the youngest professor at West Point, teaching constitutional military law. So, you know, they can follow me at, at Patrick Murphy PA. But Jacob, I appreciate, you know, letting your voice be heard out there and, and getting other voices and amplifying those voices. And if I could 